Welcome to the We Are Calvary podcast, where our mission is to share Jesus and help people experience life change. Thank you so much for listening. Here's this week's message. Good morning. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, it means a lot that you would come join us. And then for those who are watching online, thank you so much as well. Uh, we have this thing here called Respect the Word. And so if you'd stand with me, we're going to read our opening scripture today. It's found in Genesis uh, 20, uh, 25, verse 29. It's about two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for again, I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. It had to do with the red hair thing. Don't worry about it. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Father, take your word. Let the lessons that you have for us today come forth in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Steve, let me add my thanks. Uh, Pastor Daniel has been a great blessing to us here at Calvary, and we love him, and we thank you for your input into his life. Art and Peggy, you guys too. And uh, just means a lot to us here. He has restored my, my joy and hope in the future, so I'm excited. Uh, someone asked when we're doing Israel again. We're not going to Israel again until February of 2025, this next year. Uh, we're going on the journeys of Paul. We're going to Ephesus and to uh, Corinth and the journeys of Paul, going to Patmos to see where John wrote the book of Revelation. And it's going to be a great trip and there's information out there. But anyway, just wanted to let you know that. Uh, now, here's the thing. I am aware that a good, a good speaker always starts with a story, so I got one today. And it has to do with my, I told you last week, I went to Mount Rainier for the first time. I've never been to Mount Rainier before. 36 years. I know, it's a weird, crazy thing. And uh, just never went. So my daughter, it was her birthday last Friday, the first, and she asked me to go on a hike with her. So she took me up to Mount Rainier, up to the Skyline Loop, which, which is what I call the Loop of Death. <laughs> and uh, uh, it, was, it was quite the hike. So, uh, but as we started, we got up at 3.30 and got, here, uh, got up there before anyone else was there, really. And we were the first ones, and so we parked and walked to the trailhead. And as we were, as we were there, uh, she was walking ahead of me. She's a fast walker. And uh, I, I heard a rustling in the bushes. I heard a rustling. And then uh, I saw a rustling, and I said, Stacy, she became my five-year-old again. Stacy, get back here. Get right over here. Stand still. And as we stood there, just not... 15 yards from us, a black bear came out and just, just walked right in front of us, and uh, it, was a, it was a stirring moment. And I thought to myself, in the beauty of, of God's creation, at that moment, I thought, oh God, if I knock Stacy down, I think I can make it to the car. <laughs> now, that's my story, and it has nothing to do not a bit to do with the place we're going today. But I shared a story, so there. And uh, not a bit. 
Well, won't you bring it in later? Nope, got nothing. <laughs> Thank you for all the birthday wishes. I'm a year older, and let's not talk about that anymore today. And so uh, here's the thing. Here, we're, we're starting this new series, The Life We're Looking For. The Life We're Looking For. And really, it, it demands a question. It, de- it, it begs for a question. And here it is. What kind of a life am I looking for? What do I want out of life? What's my life to be about? What's my purpose? I mean, if you, if you don't ans- ask that question, then you'll never know when you arrive. You'll never know when the answer comes if you don't understand that you need to ask yourself. You know, we're a blessed church. We've got, we're a cross, we're, we're a generational church. We've got people in their 90s. We've got people just born, and I love it. I, I would hate to have a church of just one age group. I gotta be honest with you. I think there is something powerful when all the age groups and we support and love one another come together. Uh, but regardless of your ethnic background, regardless of, of where you live, regardless of your bank balance, all of us need to ask the question, what on earth am I here for? What, what am I living for? What am I seeking for in life? And so, you know, I'd love to tell you that finding out what your life's purpose is, I mean, honestly, let's be, let's be real. From my perspective, I've been a pastor for 30, uh, 40 years, longer, and it's pretty clear cut for me, but that's my context. Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him, there's no other. Jesus is the way, and we call it good. But to be honest, where you're sitting, and if you don't have the same kind of background I have, sometimes finding out what your life is to be about is difficult. Just ask young people today. They're struggling. They're struggling with trying to sort out what their lives are to be about today. And so it requires, it requires a bit of work because it's not easy, and there's a lot of different inputs, and we're going to talk about that for just a moment this morning. Um, now, the background is Esau and Jacob, as I said, were brothers, and quite honestly, they don't like each other. They just don't. To be honest with you, again, it's mom and dad's fault. Mom and dad, you know, if I had a top 10 list of bad parents in the Bible, they'd be right somewhere around five or six. Maybe number two. I mean, they're, they're terrible. And just in my opinion, but I'm right. So, uh, but Esau has been out hunting. He's a hunter. He's an outdoorsman. I don't, it doesn't say he's hunting. The text isn't clear on what he's doing. It just says he's out in the field. And so he comes in and he's hungry and he's tired. The Bible says twice he's exhausted. And, and I got to believe there's a lot of things maybe going on inside of him all at the same time. And he walks up and, and Jacob is there, his brother. And, and Esau says, I'm hungry. Give me some food. Give me some food. Give me some of that lentil s- soup. And uh, Jacob, Jacob's very name means deceiver or supplanter. At this point in Jacob's life, before God does a miraculous work in him, Jacob's not a nice guy. In fact, he's just ornery. He, he wants to get all he can get, and, and that's it. It's all about Jacob at this point. So he says, if you want my soup, you give me your birthright. Well, that may not sound like a big deal to our 21st century minds, but you've got to understand, birthright is a big deal. A birthright is a big deal. Now, I understand Esau's hungry. I understand he's got a lot going on, and exhausted and all that, but birthright is not something that you just fritter away for a bowl of soup. And yet he does. And so that birthright entitled the firstborn to two or three things. Number one, when the, when the father would pass away and he would give the birthright to his eldest son, that eldest son would become the spiritual leader of the, of the clan, of the family. He would, he would be there and he would guide in their spiritual walk he would do the ceremonies. He would keep people focused on their faith. Um, the birthright 
uh, would entitle the firstborn to what we call a double portion when everyone got X amount of dollars or land or animals, he would get double that. It was, it was a financial deal. And then thirdly, he was responsible for the family, the clan. He would be responsible for their spirituality, their, 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 their success. He would be the leader of the group. Finally, he would get what would be called a covenant blessing. And the Abrahamic covenant, the, the blessing that would be given to him would be special blessings and special promises that not only would he receive, but he would bless other people. The family around him, and I think this is an important point, as he received the blessing of the birthright, he would bless people around him. He would bless the family. And the Bible said this, and it's sad. It says that Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of lentil or red stew. Lentil soup or red stew. So he gives up some things for a bowl of soup. He gives up his spiritual leadership. He gives up his covenant blessing. He gives up the headship and the covenant blessings that were promised, the promises that were given to him. He lost his inheritance. And and there's that last statement in the passage we read, and, and it's a sad one to me. He despised his birthright. He despised his birthright. Now, uh, I want to give Esau the benefit of the doubt. You know, there's things going on inside, and I understand hunger. It was my birthday last Monday, and I fought and fought and fought not to get chocolate cake and ice cream and then sent Mary out at the last minute to Safeway to get me a slice. I mean, I understand. You can be hungry and you can be hungry for certain things. On a side note, after I ate it, all I was left with the 1,200 calories I consumed and nothing else. But that's another message. So he was hungry. He wasn't thinking straight. Had he thought about it, he probably wouldn't have traded his birthright for a bowl of soup. Uh, his birthright obviously didn't mean as much as it should have. Now, in all fairness to Esau, there's, there's two or three things going on here. One, there's the internal battles that he's fighting. There's something going on inside of him where no one else can see, in my opinion. We know he's hungry. We know that he's wore out and he's tired. And, and the chances are, because he doesn't value his birthright and he despises it, there's probably some other things going on as well. Can we all agree on that? There's a bunch of things internal, kind of like maybe you. You're sitting here today and you're smiling up at, at me, most of you. And, or some of you, well, frankly, not that many. <laughs> What's wrong with you? And, uh, you know, you can be sitting here and everything inside can be going all haywire. It can be going different. Inside, where no one else can see, there can be battles. Battles of, of, of anxiety or maybe anxiousness or despair or distrust or fear. Maybe you're worried about some of the things Pastor Daniel mentioned of, of paying the rent. And all of that's going on inside you. So we all face, just like Esau, that internal battle of what's going on inside of each of us. But how many know that there are external things we fight as well? I mean, let's be honest. Esau has got to, has got to deal with Jacob. And Jacob, we've already said, is a supplanter. He's a deceiver. In my opinion, he's a liar. And he sees a golden opportunity. He's going he's gonna to take that which belongs to Esau for himself. He's going to steal that birthright for a bowl of soup. He's going to get it cheap. He's going to work and work on this, this man who is hungry until he takes what belongs to, to Esau. He's just waiting for the opportunity. And sometimes I think it's the same for us. You know, each of us in this room not only face the, our, our struggles on the inside, but out in our world around us, how many agree there are external pressures on us as well? ideologies and philosophies and, and ideas and people pressing in on us and, and we're dealing with that person and that person and all these different things. So just like Esau, we face internal stuff and we face the external things. It's the same pressure for us and there are consequences. And what we're going to find in Esau and in, for you and I, there are consequences when we choose the bowl of soup. 
By the way, did I mention we all have a birthright as well? All of us in Christ have a birthright. All of us because of his death, his resurrection, his ascension, he's sitting on the throne and one day he's coming back. Each and every one of us, just like Esau, we have a birthright that is ours in our relationship to Jesus Christ. I, I, I put two sections in your notes. One is, uh, our, our, what is our birthright as in who we are? Well, the Bible tells us, I just made a list real quickly. The Bible tells us that because of Christ, we are image bearers of God. We are sons and daughters. We are the sheep of his pasture and he is our shepherd. We are friends of God. We are heirs with Christ. We, the church, are the bride of Christ. We are, again, the children of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are a kingdom people. This is our birthright. This is who we are in Jesus Christ. And, and, and I don't want to get to the end of the sermon too quickly, but how would we sell that for a bowl of soup? How could we possibly trade that for what this world has to offer us? And it's not only who we are in Christ, our identity, but it's all the gifts that we possess. How about this one? How about salvation? It's ours in Christ. We've been forgiven. How about atonement? How about propitiation? How about adoption? Now, I don't, you know, some of us, we had parents that might have been great. We might have had parents that were not so great. But you've been adopted into the family of God and you have a heavenly father who loves you no matter what. Who's always on your team. That's part of your birthright. That's who we are, and we have access to God through prayer. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We, we, uh, we receive spiritual gifts. We live in the fruit of the Spirit. We have an internal inheritance. We are members of the body of Christ. We have God's promises. We have victory over sin, and heaven is our home. This is our birthright, and it's worth more than a bowl of soup. No soup for you. No soup for you. I couldn't stop myself. No soup for you. It's just better. May it not be said of us, sorry. May it not be said of us. They despise their birthright. They despise their birthright. Matthew 22, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, maybe they don't understand. Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. This is a parable Jesus is sharing, and the truths here are multifaceted and go deep. But the king invites everyone to a party. The king invites him to the wedding of his son. It's going to be a huge celebration. And he sends out his servants. But no one, no one acknowledges the servants. They don't come. And so he says, well, you know, they may not understand. So I'll send other servants. And, and I'm going to tell them, I, man, you've got to see this spread I prepared. The fatted calf has been killed. I mean, it, there's going to be a ton of stuff there. It's going to be a great celebra celebration. And so the Bible said he sent other servants. But the Bible said no one paid attention. One went off to the farm. One went off to his business. Others were so angry at the invitation. Don't ask me why. But they, they, they treated the servant, uh, the, the person bearing the invitation shamefully. And then they, they were killed. This story always amazes me. Number one, it's because, number one, the king is asking. I don't know about you, but if the king asks me, I'm going to go. If the king issues an invitation to a celebration, I think it's probably going to be a pretty cool, 
celebration. And secondly, the celebration itself looks pretty good to me. And yet, more times than not, we as a people, sometimes we ignore what God may be speaking or what God wants to do in us or show us the life that we are called to live because we're busy at the farm or we're busy in our business or the externals or the internal pressures become so great that we don't hear the voice or the invitation of God. We don't hear him say, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. We don't hear the call to a life that is different than what we're living. Why is it so hard? I mean, just between you and I, and I'm a pastor and I've had good times and there have been times I've sat just like you have. I've heard the message, I've tried to live the life, but I've gotten so busy with other stuff that even if, if God were to be right in front of me, I, I might not have recognized him. Anyone here? You know, you need to know, and I just wanna, I wanna encourage some of you that maybe the problems you're facing, I know they're new to you, but they're not new in, in, in humanity. They're just not. And I'm gonna tell you what made it harder. I mean, before, right around the 17th century, church played a big role. Church was the center of every town square. It was a big deal. And people at least acknowledged that there was a God. Not anymore. There were some, some earthquakes in history that changed everything. Some turning points within history that changed the way that people saw the world and that added new stuff that they could think about. For instance, uh, the French Revolution. Put those dates up there for me, if you will. French Revolution, 1789 to 1799. It got crazy. At the French Revolution, especially during that year called the Reign of Terror, they tried to de-Christianize the entire nation of France. I mean, an incredible time. I mean, it, the legislation, they passed laws. Notre Dame, where I have stood in for a brief time, was now then called the Temple of Reason. They, it went so bad as they changed all the name with Christian names on it. They changed it to more secularized stuff so that they could eradicate and do away with the church with with religion being a central part of life. And it didn't just happen in France during that time. The Industrial uh, Revolution, not the Industrial, the French Revolution spread to other nations. So that where the church and where religion was such a central part, now there were competing forces. Then the Age of Enlightenment slash the Age of Reason, they're sometimes used interchangeably. That time, new ideas came into being about man, about humanity, about our potential and all these different things and about how if we were smart enough, we could reason things out. Then you had the Industrial Revolution where people began to live differently. No one just lived in their little communities anymore, but they spread out and they spread to the cities and uh, industrial, uh, industrial Revolution led to urbanization where the people practiced their religion differently because of all the different economic pressures. The world had changed. And so external forces began to play on how people lived out their Christian lives. Then you had, uh, next one please. Then you had the rise of humanism, guys like Frederick Nietzsche. Even today, a guy, you know a name, Richard Dawkins? Tremendous atheist that just writes stuff like crazy. Um, uh, Karl Marx and others. Uh, the rise of humanism, and we began to believe in the potential of humanity. Began to see that within ourselves, and there does, we don't need a, an external God because all the power rests within us. And then globalization, that has to do with social medianism and all these different things where um, we're a smaller nation, we're a smaller world now because of the internet and all these different things. And if someone has a thought over here, that thought becomes disseminated through all the rest of the world, I mean, at breakneck speed. 
And all of these different forces, these seismic events in history, all led to other ideas and all other, other external pressures begin to be formed on what we think and what we want and how we, how we think about life and all these different things because all these new pressures, I call them the isms. I, I, I couldn't come up with something better than that. I call them the isms. That out of uh, the French Revolution, the age of industrialism, uh, hum- uh, age of reason, enlightenment, all these things, there came these other isms that began to fight for and compete with our understanding of what life should be about. The life we're looking for now had a ton of different things that we could argue about and we could claim. Materialism, the belief that wealth is central to one's life and happiness. Have you ever seen anyone consumed by that? Man, let me tell you, on Friday, my birthday, on a whim, I called a, a guy I, 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 I've, I've talked to before. He's a business guy. And I was asking him some stuff. And he said, hey, I, just want, I was going to call you, he said, because something happened that's really good news on some stuff we were working on, different, separately, but yet same kind of project. And I got to be honest with you, the entire day consumed me. The entire day consumed me. Where I should have been thinking about family and birthday and all these things of what God had done. I became consumed with that one thought. Materialism doesn't just go on wanting more. Materialism is also, I think, keeping what you got. I mean, I went to the fair on Monday with the family. Like a deer in the headlights. Grayson said, Pa, I'd like a, 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 an ice cream cone, a soft ice cream cone. Okay, come on. You know, I'm a sucker. Come on. So I take him up there. Ten bucks. Ten bucks for an ice cream cone. I said, well, that's crazy. I wanted a corn dog. I wanted a corn dog. So I went over it and I got the, the, the regular size corn dog, not the monster ones they're selling out fronts for a hundred bucks. I got the I got the little ten bucks. I mean an ear of corn, ten bucks. I rem- I can't believe I'm doing what my dad used to do. Oh dear Lord. I remember when I could get ten ears for a buck and now it's ten dollars for one ear. I mean, my, wow. But that's materialism. It's not just gaining more. It's preserving what you have and you begin to be consumed by it. How about consumerism? The belief that buying and consuming will satisfy. It doesn't. I've tried it. How about you? I've tried it. It doesn't work. How about individualism? The belief that an individual rights, autonomy, and self-interest is above all else. We're there. My rights Take precedence over your rights. Hedonism. The belief that pleasure and gratification is the highest good. See how these things, they vie for the life we're looking for? Secularism. The belief that life is better lived apart from spirituality and religion. Relativism. We're living here. We're living all these right now. The belief that truth and morality are relative and subjective. In other words, my truth's not your truth, and truth that might be out there will be different, but it's just as valid. Nihilism, the belief that life lacks inherent meaning, purpose, or value. How many young people today are struggling with this one? Nihilism, that life has no meaning, that life has no value, that life has no purpose. Nationalism, the belief that loyalty and devotion to one's nation or ethnic group is everything. Beloved, I've told you, I've traveled a lot. I've been to a lot of other nations. This is the greatest place to live in the entire world, but make no mistake about it, my citizenship is in heaven, and so's yours. And so's yours. Well, here's the thing. 
but, but right now there's a push on, even within churches, this, this push, uh, you know, it, it, it is, uh, it's from the pit of hell, a, a Christian nationalism. I'm just going on a limb here. I don't care. It, it's awful. It's just not right. My allegiance is to Jesus Christ and not to anyone on this planet. I'm just being honest with you. How about populism? That's where all of our anger and all of our frustration at the elites or some supposed enemy that everyone else tells me we're supposed to hate, we buy into that, this populism thing. How about humanism, the belief that human ability, progress, and potential, I can't even get through this one. I've seen enough of humanity to realize that if there's any hope for humanity, it's not within us, it's in Jesus. It's just in Jesus, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so what are all these things? Not, they're, they're soup. They're soup. Whenever you stack up Jesus, his call and the life you're looking for up against these things, these isms, they're nothing more than soup. They're a lie. And yet we buy into them like they're everything. And they're not. They're just one more way to sucker you out of your birthright. Don't sell out for a bowl of soup. Don't give in to red stew or lentil bean soup. Hold on to what God has given you because the life you're looking for has been right there all the time. It's right in front of you. And we battle and we have to push back because coming against these things is, is difficult sometimes. Hold on to what God has given you. Sit at the feet of Jesus. Put the wedding garments on. Go to the celebration. And if you see the king's son, his name is Jesus, and sit at his feet... Luke 10, now when they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house and she had a sister named Mary but, or who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell, me, tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, answered her Martha, 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 Martha. <laughs> Only two, but I added, I added two there. You are, now listen to what he said. You are anxious and troubled about many things. It's not just one thing about your sister not helping you serve. There's other things. You're anxious and troubled about many things. In other words, Mary or, or Martha, there was other stuff going on inside of her, just like Esau. Just like Esau. And she comes into that context, and it was her, you know, she's right, Mary. Uh, the culture, the expectations of the day would be that Mary would be up, the men would be sitting, and Mary, like Martha, would be up doing all the work, doing all the serving around. But there was something in Mary that made her realize that her time would be better spent sitting at the feet of Jesus. Her, life's, her life would mean more sitting at the feet of Jesus. And, and so Jesus replies to Martha. He tells her, Mary's not helping you because she's chosen something better. She's chosen something better She's, uh, with all the distractions around her, she has chosen to sit at, the, at my feet. Martha, it'd be good for you too to stop running around seeking your life, your, your life's purpose and all the isms around you and all the soup and sit at my feet and hear what Jesus would have to say. Mary has chosen the good thing with all the distractions around us, with all the different isms available. It becomes more important not to let our anxiousness, not to let our hunger, not to let our, our, all these things get in the way of sitting at the feet of, of Jesus. Now let me end with one more story, and this one does apply. 
There's a young man who I'm pretty impressed with. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was born in 1906 and died in 1945. Dietrich Bonhoeffer received his doctorate when he was 21 years old. He was a consummate pastor, teacher, and theologian. We have books today we use in, in this church on community that are his writings. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran pastor, whose real claim to, to being known was his, his fight against Nazi, in Nazi Germany. Uh, he pushed back hard. The evangelical German church had chosen to, to follow Adolf Hitler. They, they capitulated their beliefs, they gave in, and they chose to follow Adolf Hitler. The evangelical church wanted to just let Aryan pastors be pastors, Aryan, true Germans. They wanted to remove the Old Testament. They wanted to make liturgy and worship more German-like because of their nationalistic views at that time. And uh, men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, men like Karl Barth and others signed uh, what is called the Barman uh, uh, Declaration that said, we will not give in to these kinds of things. Um, we reject false teachings. The churches should remain independent. We must defend our faith. And every Christ follower must have, and every pastor must have a firm allegiance to the teachings of Jesus. Jesus is who Jesus is. And Jesus cannot be seconded to an Adolf Hitler or to anybody else. Jesus is. And so... They all signed this and they became known as the Confessing Church. It was an underground movement because the, the Gestapo were after them and they were quelling Christianity and those who wouldn't get in line with the true Christ, or the evangelical lines of those who were following Adolf Hitler. And so they asked the Confessing Church, they asked Dietrich Bonhoeffer to start a seminary called the Finkenwald Seminary. It was in a little town in a, in a, in a, a huge house where it, wasn't, it was off the beaten path. And as, they, as they, he would bring them in and he would teach them about community, he would teach them about scriptures. I mean, he would, he would work these guys through to where they had a firm understanding of who Jesus was, this community of worship. Well, eventually the Gestapo found Finkenwald Seminary and, and arrested many of the students there. And uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was placed, in prison, was placed in a prison and then in a concentration camp. And he was there because of his faith, because he went against the norm. One of his friends, uh, and this all comes from my reading of a book called uh, Beautiful Resistance by John Tyson. I, I couldn't even get past the introduction without being moved. One of his friends thought that Bonhoeffer was getting a little overzealous in all these things. So he came, up, or came from Berlin to see him. And Bonhoeffer put them in a commune. They, they went out on the lake and they got, out, got on a little knoll overlooking a huge Luftwaffe uh, airfield, German airfield. And it was there that Bonhoeffer turned to his friend and he said these words. Would you put it up there for me? He said, you have to be stronger than these tormentors that you find everywhere today. You've got to be stronger then these tormentors, then these things that will come against you. By the way, 1945, at the direct request of Adolf Hitler, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged weeks before the liberation of Europe. He gave his life, and you can look this all up for yourself, because of what his life represented. You need to be stronger 
than these tormentors. How, would, how might we say that today? You must be stronger than materialism. The gospel must be stronger in you than in materialism. Stronger than consumerism, stronger than humanism, stronger than secularism, relativism, hedonism, stronger than the soup this world offers. There has to be something that stirs in you that your birthright of who you are in Christ and the life that he wants you to live must be so overwhelming to you that you push back against the darkness of this world. And we say, we choose to follow Jesus. This world and all that's in it cannot compare to who Jesus is. John, uh, John Tyson in this book, I, I want to share this paragraph with you, that has the, as the world pressures comes in on all of us to give in or to, to settle down. He wrote these words. He said, should we give up and capitulate to the powers of our time? Should we sit by while our faith is taken captive by political and ideological forces? Should we avert our eyes while mammon wreaks havoc on our hearts? Should we watch 20 million young people leave the church in a generation, a million a year, give up on faith? Is it possible? Is it possible to build a community in such a way that though it is small, generations to come will look back on our faithfulness in a generation of compromise? Is it possible that there is a group of people who arise who are looking for the life that Jesus Christ has for them who will be at the end of that life say, as the Apostle Paul, I have fought a good fight, I have kept the faith, and hence for me is lifted up or given to me a crown of righteousness. Is there not a group of church people who say, as Paul did, for me to live and to die as Christ? To live as Christ, to die as gain, sorry. Is there not a group of people who will passionately and purposefully seek the life that God has for us. No, no soup for you. You have a higher calling. And we will be the people who over the next few weeks say, this is stronger than that. This is greater than that. That's my heart for me and my heart for you. So let's bind together as that church, a small group of people who collectively are going to say, God, here we are, show us your way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are and what you want to do in us. You are calling us to something. Your invitation goes forth. That invitation involves sitting at your feet and hearing what you have to say to us in Jesus. We pray that by a move of your spirit, we would value the birthright that we have in Christ. That we would come to the celebration and enjoy the presence of the Lord. That we would sit at his feet. Lord, we push back against the offerings of, of lentil bean soup that the world offers. And we embrace what you have for us this day. So Holy Spirit, come and do a work in us, we pray, starting right this minute in Jesus' name. Stand with me. Let's worship the Lord together. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to partner with us in sharing Jesus and helping people experience life change, 
You can support our mission by clicking the link in the description. If this message has impacted you, please subscribe and share. To learn more, visit wearecalvary.com. We'll see you back next week.